I'm gonna be up all night turning switches on and <laughs> trying to get wound down. Uh, I hope we have all systems working so that uh, we can uh, speak in a way that you can can hear and hopefully benefit from it. Uh, be aware that you know what I'm sharing with you is kind of scratches the surface and gives us a general working knowledge and not intended for us to know everything when we leave here, but all while we have the opportunity that we all have the same desire to say we want to help each other in a way that maybe we've never really been prepared for before. We're all caring people and we've, we've wanted to help, but we haven't realized the kind of help that's been needed until now. And we would never want to be uh, put in that position where we're separated and we're isolated and we're helpless and hopeless. And there were times when all of us have a little bit of that to say, where do we go from here? And I mean, we're geared up and ready to help and uh, there's nothing we can do. Or we need help and there's no one to reach out to. And so we want to make sure that we, we've learned from this experience. And this fourth type of, of psychological uh, depression or this third rather is neurotic depression and it's characterized by a person being uh, kind of a hypochondriac and maybe feeling hopeless at times and a diminished activity and sleep interruption and maybe even at times having uh, death threats so you see that um, death threats in the sense saying you know i don't want this to this to continue when you look at passages like Psalm 38 and verse 8, where the psalmist said, I am feeble and sore broken. I have roared by reason of my, my disquietedness in my flesh. And he drop down to verse 10 and he says, My heart panteth, my strength faileth me. As for the light of mine eyes, I also, they also have gone out. Notice the despair that this person is describing. Now you do realize along the way that we have referred to biblical passages. Which lets us know that people in the past have had similar experiences. And these were spiritual people. People who are striving to not only know God but to serve God and yet coming to the surface were times in their life when they said, here's how I feel. And most of those are, are written prayers that are spoken to God. And they say out loud to God, here's how I feel. And that's really helpful for us to realize that we're not the first ones to experience that. And we won't be the last. In fact, in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, it said, These things are written aforetime and written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Well, how do you get past hopelessness? Well, you have hope. How do you do that? You go and say, we're not the first one to experience it, and so we probably won't be the last one to experience it, so we can experience it and come out on the other side. Doesn't mean it'll be pleasant. None of these words sound pleasant to me. It sounds like they feel broken. Like it's hard for them to, to 
to breathe and to go forward. But when we talk about neurotic depression, now we've got the, the function being interrupted. There's some irrational thinking that starts taking place that all the dots aren't connected. And so they start reacting in a way that's problematic in relationships and problematic on the job and just problematic functioning. We have a real problem. When it gets to the stage of, of neurotic depression, and sometimes those who struggle with normal depression, maybe if it's not addressed correctly, can get to this point. Sometimes it's because of... Uh, medication maybe you're taking because of a surgical procedure or something and and you've been having to take medication for something else and it throws things out of whack and you find yourself here in this condition so it might be a lot of things but it's irrational in your thought processes that you don't think you're going to survive and things seem to be hopeless and every pain you have might be the end Maybe this is fatal. That you you notice every single pain. You know, sometimes we we if we get in those conditions, we pay attention to things that really are normal. But under that particular irrational thinking, it becomes abnormal. And you have to pay attention along the way. When uh, our I keep picking on our our oldest son, but uh, probably since he was our first and because we were young and didn't know how to be parents, you know, we probably were the problem. But um, uh, when he was quite young, and I just started preaching, I'd gone from being a, a, a clerk at the post office and everything was kind of calm and we lived close to our family members and everything was normal. And, and so I go off to school and we enter the ministry and now I'm, he has to share me with everybody else. And, and so uh, I was... I coached his little baseball team and there was a little girl on his team whose mother was a nurse <clears throat> and so our oldest son would would uh, complain all the time about I mean he just something was hurting and you know he, he, he would say I think I need to go to the doctor you know and I think well tell me about it he tried to tell me about it and I said you know let's watch that and see you know see if it gets better and sometimes it would and other times it, like, it it still hurts and so anyway uh, don't get free medical advice at after ball game one day and the nurse was there and her little girl and so the kids went off to play and i said uh you know uh, can i ask you something i said paul is always complaining about something i told him some of the pains he was having and, and she said um, you're a minister and i said yeah she said um, you visit a lot of sick people and i said i do she said, do you ever take your children with you to visit sick people? And I said, sometimes. She said, in probably all kinds of conditions, huh? And I said, yeah. She said, well, all of us experience growing pains. So we take, oh, that's a growing pain. Our body's growing. So that means the joints and stuff are adjusting and muscles get sore. And all of us go through that process. Normally, they were out playing, you know, throwing the ball back and forth. He said, normally, you know, that we just say, well, my arm's sore because I'm throwing a baseball. Or we just work it into normal activities of life, and so uh, we don't think about it. She said, more than likely, 
And I remember this all these years, but just so insightful to me. I thought, wow. She said, more than likely, you know, when you take him visiting with you, and he sees people, really sick people, you know, and, and some of them probably don't live. You know, and when you describe what's hurting, and boy, they, they ignore that pain, and all of a sudden, it's too late. And so he's not going to ignore any pain. <laughs> if his, his elbow's hurting because he's growing a little bit, like, hey, uh, I, might, I might have cancer in my elbow. You know, my, my, my joints are hurting here. And that was insightful to me. I said, okay. I said, you're saying I shouldn't take him with you? She said, no, no. Uh, I would take him, but I would explain to him the difference. You know, here's an injury that took place or age or surgery or put it in the right context and not just people are moaning and groaning and, and this is a really serious condition because when he has a pain, he's going to say, hey, maybe I need to go get this checked out because they ignored theirs and look what happened to them. I'm not going to ignore mine. So he was kind of a hypochondriac when it came to those things. We always knew when he was hurting. And sometimes so much so we wanted to hurt him. Just say, all right, give us a break here, you know. Uh, you're going to be okay. But in that context, you can see where people who are thinking irrationally would have those experiences where they would notice pain. And maybe they're the person that you, you kind of avoid at church or in the family, you say, well, I, I don't want to hear that anymore. You know, okay. I've heard that, so I don't want to hear that. Maybe this time you ought to hear it. And just ask them. All right, tell me what's going on with you. And they may tell you, I've had that, you know, I've had these pains for years and say, you know, and, and don't patronize them because they know the difference. But just say, you know, I have admiration for you that you would be able to endure that pain and you're still functioning. I don't know if I could endure that the way you have. I appreciate the fact that you would share that with me and I'd have an understanding of, of really how you feel. Maybe I haven't ever felt that way, but... That allows to put some rationality back in an irrational context where we can talk about things that are characteristic of a certain behavior. Sometimes this neurotic behavior that we experience where we are irrational may have been caused because of interruption in our life where our worlds have been turned upside down and things that we thought were normal and right and in order becomes abnormal and out of order. And so our mind that normally would have sorted those things out now doesn't know what order to sort them out in. And so we don't know sometimes if we're, we're thinking clearly and rationally or if we're thinking irrationally. And so when we put it in the context of this mental, emotional, physical reaction to something that is irrational. What sometimes you might ask a person who is struggling with these things and they're willing to talk to you about these things, give them time to explain the rationale why they think it ought to happen that way or that the reason that it happened that way. So you can recognize the pattern of the discussion. Doesn't mean you have the authority or the expertise to say that's irrational. But if you've never heard it, how do you know? 
If you'd never taken the time to listen, how would it ever be sorted out? And then you might be able to engage them in saying, well, are there some things that you and I can do together that might could change that? Are there some activity we could participate in together that you feel like you could sort out? You see, you don't want that to turn into a long time hopeless condition. Because what happens then, we start diminishing activities and immediately, as soon as we start diminishing activities, guess what happened to that hypothalamus, that uh, thalamus that releases the proper endorphins and serotonin? Guess what happens when we're inactive? Don't have to release as much. Not anything going on here. So what's going to happen then to depression? Well, it's going to increase. That's when the shades get pulled. And that's when the door gets locked. We don't let anybody in. And from somebody outside, it's very clearly irrational. But for the person who's dealing with that, it doesn't seem that way. That can turn into a psychotic depression. And that's a whole different world when we get into the psychotic realm. So it's characterized by hallucinations, acute anger, unresponsiveness, severe insomnia, and even threats of death or taking their life. And so the effects, the way that your brain works and processes the information loses touch with reality. Let me give you an example of that happening with one of my clients when I lived in Memphis a number of years ago. Here's a person who was Here's a person who was, uh, is that the correct one? All right. I get my bifocal just right, I can, I can, I can see that from here. But uh, uh, I had a client who was uh, a social worker herself. So very aware of circumstances and very aware of emotions and mental state and, and all the things we talked about. Um, but we were working through some, some issues in her, in her life and in her professional life. And uh, uh, she found just the right balance of medication that helped her function at a high level. She was a caregiver. Um, uh, she's a people helper. And she had some difficulty in some of the things we were working through. She had some difficulty letting go of, of some of her own clients that that she couldn't change the circumstances for. That she was trying to help children in certain circumstances and, and the, the system itself or the legal matters would come up and, and she felt like she had to leave those children unprotected in an environment where she wasn't comfortable with being there. And she knew she was trained to say, look, you've got to put that in a file. You've got to close the file drawer and you've got to go home and start tomorrow. That you do everything within your ability and your professional know-how and your networking of influence to do everything you can to get that child as much help and as many resources as you can, and then that's it. You can't take that home with you. And so she knew that on paper, but she was having a real difficult time letting go. But she was surviving, and 
for years she'd taken medication, so she was highly functioning, just needed to be reminded, okay, simply because you can't fix it for that child doesn't mean you don't care about that child. And it doesn't mean you haven't done all within your power to help that child. It just means you're not the only one in the decision-making process to bring fruition to what it is you feel like needs to happen. So do your part. Do it well. Then go home and get prepared for tomorrow. For the help of that child and for the help of the other children, you can't afford to get lost here. You can't be so irrational that, that you can't think these things through. So we were making really good progress. And her husband, <clears throat> I won't get real descriptive, but he was a professional. Not a counselor, but a professional. And so he traveled some. And uh, he decided that she was an intelligent person and that she was an educated person and that she really did not need to take medication. That she was bright enough and he loved her enough that they could make this happen without medication. Um, and guess what happened? He not only took the medication away from her. But he left town on the trip with the medication with him. His script was, we're both Christian. We both can work through this. And so you don't need the medication to do it. And he was right in all the above with the exception of the medication. She was a very bright person. She's a very educated person. They were both Christians. They could have worked through that together. But he wasn't a medical doctor. He wasn't a licensed counselor. And he wasn't equipped to make that decision. And the next thing I know, I get a call from her mother and her sister and said, I don't know what's happened to her, but she is coming apart. Um, and I said, well, we need to get her to emergency room. They said, well, we're just outside your office. We're coming in your office. And I said, well, you know, this is really not where you need to say, we need to, we'll, we'll make whatever call we need to make, and we'll make it from your office. And she had reached this psychotic stage. You see that bright, educated, compassionate, caring person. Because her medication was removed, now it's completely detached from reality. And she talked in a different voice. She talked in a little girl's voice. And she'd tell me secrets. Her mother and her sister were sitting there, but it's almost like they weren't there. Like if she talked in a child's voice, they wouldn't understand what she was saying to me. So I got a message around to them while I was talking to her, and they made the call, and we got her to the emergency room. Without saying, okay, okay, none of that's making any sense. Oh, you've lost it now. I just listened to her little girl's story until we could get her to help. For the next several days, she went through this bizarre experience of this psychotic, depressive episode. 
that was totally, completely unavoidable because her medication was taken away. We can't ever place ourselves in that position where we're the ones that decide. And boy, when you have family members that are struggling with that, don't become their physician. Don't decide for them what they need or don't need. You don't have that ability and you don't have that expertise and you can put them in a state where they really do not connect with reality. When you talk about psychotic behavior, it affects the way that, that our brain processes that information. And normally we would say, this is real and this is not. This is possible, this is impossible. Not connected that way anymore. It took three police officers to come and get her and physically place her in the ambulance. That's how physically strong she was in that psychotic state because that medication was taken away. Remember I told you earlier, whoever put you on it, <laughs> you let them take you off of it gradually under supervision so that everybody's safe because her body was working fine on that. He had just projected to say, look, Christians ought not have to take medication. I don't know where he heard that. I don't know who decided that. But if Christians shouldn't take medication, I wonder, I just wondered, I never asked him because it wasn't appropriate to ask him. But I often wondered, I wonder if he'd ever been sick and took antibiotics. I wonder if he'd ever had surgery and took pain medication. What do you mean Christians don't take medication? You see, that was something he didn't understand. And, and he never had experienced depression. He didn't realize why she would have to have medication to deal with her depression. But it was working for her and she was highly functioning. She was a Christian and she was contributing in a very compassionate, full-hearted way and doing Christ-like things until the plug was pulled on the medication and she can't even function on her own. I won't ever forget one of the saddest visits I ever made. Now keep in mind, her husband's out of town. He can't get back quick enough, sign anything or deal with anything and so mom and sister are having to try to deal with it and they're seeking advice from me and so the hospital has to do what the hospital does and and so they have her transported from the emergency room to the mental hospital stay with me here you go from this active engaged, focused, compassionate, caring Christian woman who was dealing with some of her own issues saying, I know I need to handle this a little differently. I need some help handling it a little differently. So she was conscious enough, rational enough to say, I've got to have some help letting go of some of my patients, 
where I've done all I can do. She was doing all the right things in the right way. And now her counselor is sitting across the table from her in a mental institution. She was broken. Dejected. Ashamed. When really there was nothing for her to be ashamed of. But all the episodes of this psychotic detached from reality behavior was induced because she didn't have the medication. We were having the conversation across the table and she could barely, barely make eye contact. And she finally eased her head up looking broken and ashamed, and she said, could you please talk just a little softer? I really don't know why I'm here or how I got here. But I would really prefer that as few people know that I've been here I doubt any of us during this COVID maybe reach this point. But my guess would be we see it a little differently now than we did before. It would make sense that somebody is taking something that allows them to function and contribute and participate that we would celebrate that and not diminish that. And if there's ever a place, and you need to listen carefully to me, if there's ever a place where they ought to feel support and encouragement, and where God ought to get the credit for us living in the good old days, where we have advanced medical knowledge and understanding and medication, that can help us. I'm not talking about slap happy doctors writing prescriptions for everything that comes along. That's not what I'm talking about at all. We have to be talking about anxiety and depression. Now I know those states can occur in people's lives when there is a chemical imbalance. Not because they want it to be, but because there is. And they want to be functioning. And when they find a way for it to function, why wouldn't that be a blessing from God rather than a, a declaration of their lack of faith? Why wouldn't that be? Isn't God good? My father-in-law battled the diabetes from the time he was 40 to the end of his life and had to take insulin a shot three times a day and gave thanks every time he gave himself a shot that he had the ability take insulin so he could find he was highly functioning very disciplined in his diet used his life fully and completely and was grateful that he had it why wouldn't that apply for depression and anxiety if not why not 
And Christians ought to be able to embrace that. And there is time when our faith ought to be stronger. But there's time when my faith ought to be stronger. I'll just go ahead and confess to you. There are times when my faith ought to be stronger. And I shouldn't have to take an a appeal for my faith to be stronger. But simply because I, taught, I take blood pressure medication doesn't mean that I have little faith. It means I have faith to say, look, God blessed me with an opportunity to have my, my health enhanced by reducing my blood pressure so I can live longer and serve Him better and longer. Why wouldn't that apply to anxiety and depression? But because we don't all experience it and we don't all see it, we put that in a whole different category. Unintentionally, we've isolated those who've struggled with it. It is a lonely place to be. Whereas if we participated with them, again, I'm not talking about enabling them so they just feel sorry for themselves, but to say, no, I don't really relate to that, but I do relate to you, and I love you, and you give me some insight and knowledge to help me help folks who do struggle with it. Can you do that for me? Can we do that together? Isn't that a whole different approach? That way that person says, I still have something to offer. I can give some insight and understanding in an area that that person doesn't understand. And together, together, we can reach out to those in that world out there who doesn't have a spiritual family. And they can see in us how that we are fitly joined together by that which every joint supplies. So these are dangerous areas when we're talking about neurotic depression because it is irrational and so we have to have some help there and that's where we need to make sure. Uh, and I would advise family members and leaders in the church to make sure that they get to know medical people in their community and, and counselors in their community and develop some understanding and some confidence in folks who are not going to just write a prescription, but really do an examination and work with that person to say, what is really going on? Eliminate those things, make sure it's not medical, and, and deal with those things that are at hand. And then for you to embrace helping those people in that way. Say, so, you know, we want to help you make this journey toward heaven. We're not medical doctors, so we don't know how to deal with that, but we know some who are. We have a lot of confidence in. We'd like to encourage you to make sure there's not other things going on that need to be addressed. And participate with them in that process. If the medical doctor says no, everything's okay. Maybe there's a, a Christian counselor we can say, can the doctor and the counselor work together and, and make sure that the opportunity to take medication and be supervised while we're talking our way through different approaches and different behaviors and different circumstances of life. So that we never get to that point where they're non-functioning and they have those psychotic moments where they're just really not in terms of reality. You would remember, wouldn't you? Always been fascinated about this. In Matthew chapter 25, when the Lord described the judgment scene, always a pretty sober thing we say in that day. 
You know, like, okay, time's up. Everybody's gathered. Don't divide them like the shepherd divide the sheep from the goats. What he describes to those on his right hand is just so fascinating to me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. I was naked and you clothed me. Their response was, Lord, when did we see you in those conditions? And he said, when you did it under the least one of these, you did it under me. Now, each of us can relate to providing physical clothes to a physically naked person. I hope we have learned over the last year and a half how to help emotionally clothe those who are naked from the depression that they struggle with so they can be clothed with the compassion and care it kind of sounds like to me the Lord's paying attention and if we're just not uncomfortable with it we say we're going to do whatever needs to be done that's the condition they're in that's where I'm going to meet them that's where I'm going to help them that he pays attention he says you're doing it to me now all of a sudden, it's not easy for me to label the Lord. I'm saying, I'm going to help because I want to be like the Lord and help those who are in need. I hope these things are helpful to you. In the next session, we're going to pull all this together in a biblical example of someone, if they had walked in my office, would have been diagnosed as clinically depressed. If you took the diagnostic manual and said, here are all the things you look at and, and all the, the, the traits that have to be present for them to be diagnosed, you're going to say, that's it. Diagnosed made. And we're going to find out what the Lord did about it. <laughs> and it might dispel some of the images we've had, unfortunately, for a lot of years. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back. Finish up.